Welcome, Train Bible Church, as well as uh, family and friends who may be visiting or first-time visitors. Uh, as we continue our time of public worship, we're uh, in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 18. Uh, this morning, I'll be covering roughly a couple of verses, uh, but we'll be reading all of 18, um, 1 through 20 this morning. Uh, as, uh, as I read through this uh, um, out loud, uh, after the reading of the word, I ask that um, everyone take an opportunity to pray uh, silently uh, to God. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit to um, illuminate your heart and your mind to the truth of the word. And if you are here and you, you do not know um, Christ and you are not a Christian, you are simply here, whether family brought you or you happen to find yourself here today. I simply ask that you consider the words today, um, written so long ago, by eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, the God-man, our Redeemer and Savior. So reading now, chapter 18, verses 1 through 20, although focusing on verses 18 through 20 today. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord. Please take this time to pray. 
Heavenly Father, as the faithful assemble here on the Lord's Day, we come first and foremost to celebrate. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrate his death and shed blood on the cross for the sins of his people. Lord, and we, through no work of our own, those who have believed in him, because there was no, not because there was anything good in us, rather, that God's redeeming love was placed on us through his good and holy counsel. Lord, and for his pleasure alone. Lord, so as people called and drawn by the Holy Spirit, redeemed and regenerate by that same Holy Spirit through the power of God's word, now celebrate our union with this great Savior, Jesus Christ, through that same Spirit. And as we are here, we celebrate that union with Christ in our communion with one another as the gathered assembly, the bride of Christ. And we come on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, in commemoration of His resurrection from the dead. We come celebrating His great work through prayer, both personal and public. Through praises, the songs that we sing, celebrating His good work. Lord, we do so through our fellowship in the time where we celebrate Him in the community with which we've been put together. And later we will celebrate it through sacrament or ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And now we come, Lord, to celebrate it through the hearing and listening of God's holy and true word. The testimony of Jesus Christ given from Genesis to Revelation. Lord, and now as your people are gathered, we know that we, through this week, have erred. We have sinned, fallen short. Lord, I pray through the Spirit we have been driven to repent of those sins. And if we have not, I pray we do so now. Driven by that same union we share with Christ to sorrow in our own sin. To repent, to fix our affections which were on other things back on Christ. Lord, strengthen your people now as we read your word through the power of the Spirit and your holy and true word. And more than anything, may you be glorified in our continued public worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we discussed 18 last week, one of the things I was attempting to communicate, albeit probably not in the best manner, which is sarcasm, which just happens to be my personal love language, is I was pointing out this aspect of how Matthew 18 in particular is, is kind of compartmentalized into a few verses. And when you say Matthew 18, everyone knows simply that that's the passage that you bring up when things are about to get serious with some type of disciplinary issue. The point I was trying to make is that those verses, 15 through 20, five verses, are a part of a larger whole of a narrative. 
of, of, of a type of, of continued teaching by Jesus to his disciples. Of course, it begins with the disciples with an argument with one another about who was the greatest among them, and so who would have the highest place in this kingdom. And again, all throughout Matthew, kingdom has taken emphasis on everything. Jesus is inaugurating this new kingdom. The old is passing away. The new is here. John is a marker of the old passing away. John the Baptist. He's heralding in the new. The incarnation, the God-man is here. The long-awaited Messiah from Genesis 3 until now has finally arrived. And God's kingdom has arrived with him. And as Jesus is teaching this throughout, this question of kingdom is still arising, both from the unbelieving crowds, both from his opponents, as well as his own disciples. And that there's still a misunderstanding happening that the disciples, at this point in time, after all they've seen, are still wondering and thinking and imagining it looks like man's kingdom, where there's going to be Jesus, the ruler, and because he's chosen us, certainly we're going to be the greatest among all these other inhabitants of the kingdom. So I wonder who's going to be greatest. And so Jesus humiliates them or humbles them by putting a child in front of them and saying, this one who has no social standing but is humble before all of us, this attitude of humility, this one will be higher in the kingdom than any of you who are wondering at your own greatness. And then continues to take humility and child and little one to now correspond to these disciples he's talking to and for future disciples. What does one who's great in the kingdom look like? They are humble before God because they are acknowledging their own estate as sinner, as rebel, as unworthy recipient of God's grace. And so the only response is, I don't know who the greatest is going to be in the kingdom, but it won't be me. And so it goes from there then to Jesus telling a few stories about using now this little one. But sometimes these little ones, these disciples go astray. And when they go astray, it's time to go after them. And that's what begins the whole dialogue of what becomes Matthew 18, 15 through 20, is this idea of one going astray, what do you do? Well, you see in the analogy of the sheep, that sheep is rescued, and he comes back, and there's more celebrating done by the one rescued, and it kind of then goes down into if this brother sins against you, it's the same idea. Now he's getting into kind of the the formulaic or the judicial aspect of how the church, this church is going to, uh, which is is not existent yet, but will be this kingdom that we see in Acts 2 at Pentecost and the birth of the church, the giving of the spirit, the paraclete, the helper. And yet now he's letting them know this is how it actually is going to go out judiciously. This is how you handle one, a sheep who has gone astray. So the whole focus of church discipline, as I said last week, is not retributive in nature or meaning punitive only. In other words, let's get them and, you know, and the torches are lit and everything, you know, burn it. That's not the point. The point is always the rescue aspect, showing this person who, 
who is saying or acknowledging at least that they have union with Christ. And you have to go all the way back to see what that means. The one who is in Christ has been rescued from a life of slavery to sin, no longer mastered by sin. Rather, now they've been purchased from that by Christ, redeemed by him, and are now his. And so they have union with Christ. And in that is every positive and good aspect of the Christian man and woman is always supposed to be resting in that reality that your union with Christ is something you already possess and cannot be taken away from you. And so if you're acknowledging that, I am in Christ, yet still a sinner. I have the Holy Spirit who convicts me of sin. The Word convicts me of sin. And so when I sin, there is conviction of that which should lead to repentance. So last week we talked about the purpose of it being a rescue or reconciliation. But now these latter two verses in 18 and 20 are dealing with this is what happens when there's no repentance. This is what happens when the brother or sister who sins against you says, nope, didn't happen, didn't do it, or don't care. And then so what is the measure of the church? The measure of the church is union with Christ. The fact that you are proclaiming Christ is in you, as he will say in John. These verses that are used in John kind of in a similar manner towards the end of this. He's talking about, he's using this idea of the church has conferred authority, meaning the church, when it's making decisions like this, is doing so with the approval of God. Meaning the church, and all the wording that will be used as we go through, is doing so in this judicious manner by the authority of God himself. And so if the offender is saying, I am in Christ, and yet they refuse to repent after the two or three witnesses. Again, had to go over this last week. The two or three witnesses are important. It says, go to them individually. And I know that I did this last week, but I feel like we should probably review this every day. If your brother or sister offends you or sins against you, step One, go to them, not go to someone else, not make a nebulous but not so nebulous long-winded post on Facebook, good grief people, or Instagram or whatever you got, whatever you kids are on these days. The tweets, I'm just kidding, I'm not that old. I just don't have any of those things. Because that's what happens, right? People get hurt, and then they write about it on Facebook and send it to the universe. Oh, I wonder who hurt them. Meanwhile, someone's reading it going, that's the conversation we had. Social media, texting, and email will make cowards of us all. 
and will immediately derail what this says. Do you have union with Christ? Does the person who has offended you, are they confessing that they too have union with Christ? Well, guess what? According to Paul in, the, in, in Romans, that is superior to any difference you might have. Greek, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, free, slave, none of it matters. What matters? In Christ. And so that's how you're supposed to approach it. And then you go, I'm in Christ, I've been hurt, I've been offended by what this person has said or done. They also are in Christ. They don't know they've offended me yet, perhaps. But now I have only one thing that is super clear. Individually, I have to go to them. You've done this to me. This is what you said. This is what you've done. The majority of the time, hopefully, the next response is, I'm sorry. I didn't realize this. I didn't realize, or whatever it might be. And then there's a coming together. Why? Because you're both in Christ. And while you're doing this, being human with one another, because you're both fallen, broken sinners who are going to hurt people and sin against them. But the spirit who is at work in you through this difficult confrontation is now shaping you more and more into the image of Christ. So don't do whatever modern nonsense there is. Don't go to everyone else in your, in your friend group before that individual. Go to them because you have union with Christ. Go to them because they have union with Christ. And so that's the beginning aspect. And then, of course, he talked, we talked about this last week. You bring the two if that person doesn't listen to you. And so then you bring two witnesses and you re-say the case. This is what was done. This is what was said. And these two witnesses are also shared union with Christ and they're all, you're all kind of agreeing that that's who you are. And then by the power of the Spirit, perhaps whatever is going on with the heart of that individual, having the two or more witnesses going, this sounds right, this sounds like you should repent, then that person hopefully repents. But then the next portion of this is for the person who goes, no, I'm not repenting because I didn't do anything or I don't care or whatever it looks like. And this is, this is the heavy stuff. The confrontation or trying to win a brother or sister back is actually the joyous part, especially if it works, especially if it plays out. But this next portion in 18 and 20 is quite different. After 17, if they refuse to listen to them, that's when it's given to the church or given to the assembly. And if they do not listen to the assembly, so you see the, the marker of where it's supposed to go. And so even if the assembly pleads with them, repent we've heard the witnesses we understand this happened your only thing to do is repent and repent understanding that you will be received with open arms by a forgiving church by the way that's why the whole next portion of matthew goes through this long discussion on forgiveness that ends the very chapter that we're in 
talking about the ones who don't forgive will not be in the kingdom. The whole thing is a big story of how we're supposed to live with one another. And so understanding, even as the whole church is pleading with them, if they repent, they're supposed to know that forgiveness is given without question. Because we've been forgiven of our grievous crimes against God. Forgiveness. In 18, truly I say to you, telling them if if after this point in 17, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector, that means to throw him out of the fellowship or her, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, if you know your Matthew, you know that in 16, this was used in what is a very, um, what's the right word? is an incredible part of this this gospel account is when you have the confession of Peter that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so Jesus will tell Peter, he does the word play on this rock, I'll build my church, the keys of the kingdom will be given to you, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And when we went through that, we talked about this was the aspect of the authority that the church had to who enters the kingdom and who is kept out of the kingdom. More than likely, this is an illusion, meaning that Jesus and the disciples often in the New Testament will either direct quote, paraphrase, or allude to an Old Testament passage. This is probably, I'm saying it because it's a bit of speculation, but, but it's probably Isaiah 22, 22. Where, where Isaiah is talking about, and the key uh, of David will be giving on your shoulder, and then who you allow in, you will let in. The door will never be closed, but who you keep out will never be allowed in. It's this idea of authority, again, conferred to the church. And you see this, again, in the continuity of the New Testament. You see this most clearly in the preaching that you see at the beginning of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, in particular, when Peter is preaching, and he'll say something about the opponents, and they'll talk, and there'll be a note by Luke about those who are hearing the words of life and those who are given over to death. And so the gospel proclamation of the invitation to the kingdom is a proclamation of the words of life and death, meaning those who believe have eternal life. Those who deny and don't believe have eternal damnation. The gospel is life and death. And so the the church is given the authority or the keys of that in chapter 16. So it's this very incredible passage that then now is repeated here specifically as it has to do with church discipline. So now, instead of the rescue happening, what happens when a person who claims to be a Christian and then is shown their sin once by the person that they were sinned against, and they say, no, and then they're brought witnesses, and those witnesses agree, yes, this is sin, you should repent. No. And then, in what would have to be in here, 
church government hasn't been established yet, but what would be in kind of the church moving forward in the first century from works like the Didache and things like that, where they talked about issues of church discipline, the three wit- the, the individual plus the two witnesses would go to the leaders of the church, the elders, and then they would be given this, and then the elders would take the case to the congregation and let them know, and it'd be in that moment that the congregation would then plead with the individual one final time to repent. And if they're actually there in the fellowship and they say no, then discipline takes its final course of what's called excommunication, taking someone and putting them outside of communion. When you think about excommunication, I don't know what you think of, but the word itself is not used very often, or when, you, when it's thrown out there, people don't think of it, but, but the word itself means to be taken out of your community. And so if your community is one who is shared union with Christ, who has the words of life and death, and within that community is the Holy Spirit of God who is pruning and disciplining and sanctifying his bride for the day when he returns, who the gifts have been given to them to minister to one another, to share the gospel and and fulfill the the gospel, excuse me, to fulfill the great commission, all of this power and all of this authority has been given to Christ's church. And now, as a person who has been a part of it, because of this, this attitude of what can only at this point be called an attitude of unbelief, they are to be treated like an unbeliever and no longer be a part of the assembly. A note of last week was that it rarely ever gets to that point in the West or in America because people simply go down the street to another church. It usually only reaches the part of someone going, hey, you offended me. No, I didn't. I'm going to get two witnesses. Bye. And they go somewhere else. And then they have the big Facebook posts. That's a shame. That's, that's a shame for us. It's, it's one of the marks of the church. It what's, it's what separates the church from the world, is the preaching of the word. A proper use of sacraments or ordinances and church discipline. Why? The word is preached because the gospel is found therein. And unbelievers come to faith by the preaching of the word. And believers come to repentance and gratitude through hearing of the gospel. And of course, taking the Lord's Supper and celebrating baptism. The celebration, each aspect of new life and and eternal future life with a risen Savior who has defeated death. In these celebrations, in these sacraments, these ordinances, we are celebrating the faith passed down to us, a, a each Lord's Day being a rehearsal for the kingdom which we will inhabit, to where we will celebrate and worship with him and take the meal with him in full when he returns 
All of that is the churches. And then church discipline is taking seriously the holiness of the church. In a congregation that agrees that union with Christ is preeminent and my love for one and other is so high that I can't let my brother or sister continue in sin. And the congregation agreeing to that. But then as such a one who shows themselves to be treated in such a manner as if their profession is untrue because of their lack of repentance, then they're to be cast out. And and the authority we have to do that, when it says, when it was written, when Christ says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whoever you call back and repent, and they are bound, and they are a part of the church, part of this new kingdom, a part of of this union with Christ, and you have forgiven them, then they are bound with you, and that is recognized, as, as in the text in terms of the Greek, as already happening in heaven it's not an aspect of we do it okay this person's cast out because they will not repent and then like the order goes up to heaven and the trinity looks over it and goes this all looks in order we're going to go ahead and stamp it as good father son holy spirit no the reality is is that it's already because of our union with christ because of the spirit's presence whatever you've done is done in heaven, meaning the authority of Christ is here amongst us as this decision is made. If that person is forgiven, it's to be viewed by the faithful as that person is forgiven by Christ. So then if they're forgiven by Christ, what are you holding a grudge for? Why is there still broken relationship if they've already repented? If they've already been forgiven, Christ has forgiven them. Who are you to continue in such a manner as treating them as something other? That's presupposed in the way this is written. Forgiven? Great. I also am a terrible sinner. I understand what you did, and maybe you hurt that person or that person, but you've repented, and they've forgiven you, and so the household forgives you, which is most important because God forgives you. And it's proof that the Spirit is at work in you. But if it doesn't happen that way, then it looks different. It looks like agreeing that the individual's life is more like one who is outside of the faith. And so as to not entertain, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, be arrogant about that individual's sin, the church must cast them out and deny them fellowship. Deny them the supper and the fellowship of the saints, the celebration of the union with Christ in all visible means they're cut off from. And if you think about that, 
if an unbeliever walks in or isn't here this morning, none of that is put on them. They get to sit. They get to hear. They don't get to take the Lord's Supper, but that should be understood. For one who calls themselves a Christian, sins against a brother or sister, and refuses to repent in these three different times, very specific ways, is to be allowed no fellowship whatsoever. And the purpose of it is to inform the faithful the need that the holiness of the church is of such import that this is a necessary step of showing that individual and everyone else in the church just how serious repentance is in the life of the Christian man and woman. Repentance When we went to Colorado this summer, sorry, I I don't know why. It popped in my head. It was obvious from the way I did it. Here's a good illustration, so it'll probably be terrible. When we were uh, on vacation this year while our our house was flooding, while we were driving, it was probably second-day flood. And then so we stopped. I don't remember the name of the town. And we're like, here's a rest stop. Uh, It's a mountain city. Um, we're hungry, let's find a place, and there's a shack by a river, and it's pizza. We're like, here we go. The kids declared it was the greatest pizza they've ever had in their life. But the interesting thing was, when we walked in, there's two people just sitting there at a table, and no one's inside. We're like, does no one work here? No, that was them. They're the owners. And then so when they finally came in, this guy was talking about things, and he's from Palau. And Christina, for those of you who know, is, is her family's from the Philippines. So they were talking about that. And, and my whole point of this illustration is there was an interaction between us about what I ate as being mostly German in my heritage and declaring that German food is pretty terrible. Sorry if you're insulted. But that I like things like sardines and rice. And he stopped cooking. And he turned around and he goes, Sardines and rice are life. I was like, we're moving here. No. <laughs> I never had a brother, but I found him. But church, union with Christ, like sardines and rice, is life. Did it work? It didn't work. It's okay. It's fine. I need someone to just throw things at me when they see me talking and go, wait a minute. They're like, no. (laughs) Fair enough. Union with Christ for the church is everything. The purity of the church is supposed to be important to you. When, When you're talking about, like, sanctification and fighting against sin, on an individual level, We all understand the necessity of that, of being in Christ. I have to fight against sin. There are some sins that tempt me way worse than others. And then the the other, my friend, the things that I'm tempted against, they're not tempted against at all. And they have these other things. Like like we all have that. that, And that that is the life that we are in. And we have to fight against it as individuals. But do you ever, do you ever kind of think about the fact that, that it's the corporate aspect of the local church is why, yes, it's important to you as an individual to be mortifying sin through the power of the Spirit and turning your affections to Christ. 
But where it really comes into play is when we're gathered together, all agreeing. Because then these things that come up like this is like we're all agreeing. Yes, of course. It's not, I can't believe you sinned against me. It's more like, you sinned against me. I've sinned against people. But here we have this case of unrepentance, casting out from protection, losing what is, what is essential to the Christian man and woman. And then Jesus in 19 says, I, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. More than likely, you probably use these two verses in a way that they were never intended to be used. And so before I start, I'm going to give you some verses from now on in your life that if you mean, like, if I pray with someone for something and then God can grant that to me, that that's actually what it meant in the text. Because that's not what this means. So, while I'm getting looks, probably still because of my sardines thing. I'm going to turn to John. It's a famous group of passages, particularly, known as the paraclete passages for the Greek word for helper. I'm just going to blow through a few of them just to let you know. In 14.12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. The greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you're talking about praying for something, this is, this is a verse for that. Uh, you could even go, go further in John, where it goes a little bit further in, in kind of detail. Uh, 15.7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. He's repeating himself, but he's also talking about Abiding in him, his union with Christ. And then going down a little bit further, as the Father has loved me and nigh, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then going all the way to 16 or 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father. I have made known to you, by the way, for those of you that are really uncomfortable with anyone saying that Jesus is your friend, I present to you John fifteen fifteen And 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So all of these aspects that John In these few chapters, he's talking about this union with him. He's talking about conferred power or authority. He's talking about praying his will and showing fruit. All of these have to do with, if you want to quote a verse where you're talking about when we're together and we pray about something, you know, and it's within God's will and it's it's about bearing fruit, these are the verses for us. And they are. These are not. 
these verses are very specifically written to the judicial aspect of excommunicating somebody. So in the word in English that you probably have in in your Bible where it says, whoops, anything they ask, meaning in, in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree or earth about anything they ask, it's a term referring to receiving or, or getting a receipt. Now, I know that's a, a, wasn't that like a lingo phrase that people use today? Like, I have receipts means I have proof. Is that not true? That's like, someone tell me that that's what the kids are doing or else my kid acting really weird. Okay, good. I got some nods. So actually, this word is the idea of, of a receipt received, meaning it's something that's used in, a, in proof being given. And so when, when it's talking about, if you agree on it, it's talking about the witnesses and the congregation casting judgment on this one who is to be treated like an unbeliever because of their lack of showing a life that that looks like one who is in union with Christ. So the judgment itself, Christ is saying, I'm here with you, meaning that through this action, I am making this judgment through the union you have in Christ. When a person is confronted about unrepentance and cast out of the church, Christ is letting them know in a judicial manner, I'm there passing sentence with you. That's what it means to bind and loose and the authority conferred. Now, all of this is to say this has to do everything to do with the purity of the church by casting this one out. Now, it's sobering, and it should be. And all we have in the New Testament, really, is when Paul tells the Corinthian church to cast the individual out. And I've mentioned this before. Years later, when 2 Corinthians is written, it seems to be he's alluding to the same individual when he says, allow that person back in. So using the words, it is my judgment. So even in this last step of casting someone out, the hope is to remain that they repent. The hope is to remain that that person comes to the individual, the original individual. So say this this happens here, and it goes all the way to the end. And we cast an individual out, and they sinned against a person, and that person's still in the church. If two years later, that person contacts the original person that they offended and says, can we meet? And they come to them and they say, I sinned against you. Please forgive me. That person's Christian duty is to do what? You know, everyone has to talk. This is the, uh, forgive. And then after that, it works in reverse order goes to the two witnesses. 
and repeats their confession. And then to the church leaders, repeats their confession. And then on the next Lord's Day, that person is back in the church. And before the first song is sang, anything like that, they then announce their confession. And then what do we do? You celebrate. Why? Because what does it show? It shows that the sheep that was lost was pressed by the Holy Spirit in such a way to bring such distress and mourning and anguish to them that they finally said, okay, I give. I'm guilty. I repent. And they're freed from that burden of carrying whatever it was. And it's in those moments where Christ himself The chief shepherd is taking the sheep, throwing it up on his shoulders, and walking them back. That's that's all. That's all this is about. Bring them back. And and in John, in 1 John, and, and there's allusions to it in Hebrews and other, there is these unfortunate aspects. It's more fluid in 1 John where they were amongst us, but then they went out from us because they were never a part of us. Meaning, in some ways, in some churches, this happened and the people never came back. And we know there'll be wolves and sheep clothing and false believers. And this is, discipline is a guard against that. It's a guard against that because when you cast them out and you ne- they never come back, they never do anything, okay, now, now it's okay to say, they seem like an unbeliever. But all of this really is this idea and the reality, gosh, of just how broken we are. Just how easily sin can take hold in the old paths of slavery to sin can take you. Living a life of knowing the enemy within. Living a life of of community. Living a life of repenting to one another and giving gracious forgiveness to one another. This is a mark of the Christian church. This is a mark of the community that desires the lost sheep to be rescued. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the unfathomable authority and power given to the church by the power of the Holy Spirit in the will of God. Lord, and while we fight against sin and fail, and at times are victorious, let us always rejoice in the one who had total victory over sin, who lessened himself beyond what we can fathom, 
humiliated himself beyond what we could fathom so that he would glorify the Father through those he had been given and that the church would strive in this fallen world to show him beautiful to this fallen world in which we inhabit. God, strengthen your church. Forgive us our sins. Comfort us by your overwhelming grace in our lives through the power of the Spirit and your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.